Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. We have amazing listeners on a musical theater podcast. By the way, I love you all dearly, including you, Michael. I'm always super grateful when a guest comes on the show that has actually listened to a few episodes. It makes my day. I know that some will have already heard of Lady in the Dark, but I also know a lot will have not. So I've been sitting here thinking what I could say or what we could say right here at the top to pique people's interest, to get them to listen. Here's what I've come up with. Let me know what you think. Lady in the Dark is like, what if Anna Wintour went to therapy and you got to watch? <laughs> right? Uh, well, yes, I, I, I think that that's absolutely something that you could uh, uh, sell this as. Or if you're a Devil Wears Prada fan, it's like Meryl Streep comes home after Paris, immediately starts having anxiety and depression that she can't explain, so she starts therapy and those sessions become musical numbers. And now, aren't you so excited to hear what happens? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today we are talking about the musical Lady in the Dark, which was a listener request from the amazing Colden. Thank you, Colden. He wrote and said, After a year of listening to your glorious podcast, I finally have the chutzpah to write for a show recommendation. I think a show that would be worth a podcast and a show that has not been discussed on any musical theater dissection podcast is Lady in the Dark, the trailblazer musical stuck in theatrical limbo, or as a musical theater podcast would say, has turned into black ketchup. Colden, you know flattery will get you everywhere on this show, so the mere fact that you brought up my black ketchup metaphor means that we are 100% covering Lady in the Dark. By the way, for those who may not know, black ketchup refers to my late great-grandma. She lived through the Great Depression, so she was very frugal and had a basement with bottles of black ketchup that she refused to throw away. She was like, ketchup doesn't go bad, and everyone was like, mm, maybe this has. So that's become my metaphor for looking at some older musicals. Have they gone bad? Were they great in their day, but probably needed to be thrown away? Or are they still totally usable? As we discovered with Flower Drum Song, are the bottles still good, but they just maybe need to be cleaned out and refilled? There will definitely be moments for discussion like that today, but I'm also really excited to cover this show because we honestly haven't covered much classical musical theater on the podcast. Not classic, classical. I haven't covered Jerome Kern, and today we're finally covering Kurt Vile. So here to talk with me about all of this is someone who's a big fan of the genre and has a significant but not threatening obsession with Lady in the Dark. He's a, he's a writer, director, and actor. Everyone, please welcome Michael Van Duzer. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, Colden is definitely my type of fan. He is. He's amazing. He also, I need to give him a shout out, sent that email with attachments for me to research. Like he did some of the research for me. So I'm so grateful to Colden. He rocks. Um, now, Michael, talk to me about your relationship with this musical. Well, I am. Uh, I have to preface this by uh, sort of telling people and reminding you that I'm a lot older than you. So, uh, uh, so we welcome all guests on the on the musical theater podcast. Yeah. 
as I grew up in a sort of sleepy surfer town in Southern California, I spent most of my time at the library. You know, any of my free time was in the library. I was already doing some performing, and so my last soprano role was uh, <laughs> Louie in The King and I. And so I vaguely knew the name Gertrude Lawrence and was in the middle of reading a lot of biographies, mostly of uh, opera stars, actually, at that time, um, oh, because opera is another passion of mine. But I ran across a biography of Gertrude Lawrence that was written by her husband. I read this biography, became absolutely entranced with the idea, just the way people would speak about Gertrude Lawrence, this enchanting stage presence. My father was in the military, so we bought things mostly on base at, at the commissary for food and, and then other stores that they had available. There was a record section, and I would save up money for either an opera album or, or a show. And Adorable. one day, looking through their long catalog, which looked like an old uh, phone book, I found that I could order Gertrude Lawrence in Lady in the Dark. Now, oh I didn't know at this time that this was really before original cast albums, but uh, I went ahead and immediately ordered it. It turned out to be six songs from the show, and um, what was most amazing to me was listening to that voice for the first time. Hmm. I was used to, uh, at this point, Ethel Merman and Mary Martin. Mm -hmm. And Gertrude was definitely a, an entirely different cup of tea. Um, <laughs> How would you it, describe her voice? It is certainly unique. It's light and... I suppose you could say ethereal. Mm -hmm. No, truly. <laughs> uh, with, a, with a fluttery vibrato. It doesn't sound like it would survive eight shows a week, but obviously it did. And the fact was, by all accounts, on stage, she was luminous, mercurial, and, you know, pretty much pure theatrical magic. Kind of untouchable, truly. Yeah, yeah. You know, she'd been a top star already for close to 20 years. But, you know, we're talking about someone who introduced classic songs that were written specifically for her by the Gershwins, Cole Porter, Noel Coward, of course, who she grew up with, mm -hmm. uh, Kurt Vile, and finally Rodgers and Hammerstein. I mean, my gosh, what a resume. <laughs> yeah. For someone who's like, quote unquote, not a singer, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, obviously she did musicals, but at the time of Lady in the Dark, it had been a while since she'd done a real musical. She wasn't conventionally pretty, although she had she wore clothes very well and had the style. Style. I mean, that of, woman had so much yeah, style. And very much the body for the 20s and 30s, too. Mm, totally. Totally, totally. Well, it's interesting that your in for this musical was Gertrude Lawrence, because same for me. The way that I learned about this show was through the Julie Andrews, Gertrude Lawrence <laughs> biopic or biopic star exclamation point, which um, I to this day, I believe is the best thing to watch when you're homesick. 
Like, if you have a sick day, <laughs> if you're in quarantine, people, watch Julie Andrews star. It's so long. It's just the longest film. Like we've been talking about, it covers the life of Gertrude Lawrence growing up in in theater in England, growing up with Noel Coward, the famous playwright, how they were friends, becoming a, a huge stage presence. And they recreate a couple of numbers from Lady in the Dark in the movie. And just seeing kind of the craziness of it. I mean, it's literally a circus. I was mm-hmm. like, what on earth is this show? Right? There's, it, it's so incredibly theatrical. Um, and I'm really grateful that they spent all of the money and honestly lost all the money because that movie was a huge flop. But I'm glad that they did it because it's one of the few references and entry points for, I think, the general public into Lady in the Dark. That's that's certainly true. I, I didn't see it until years later because it probably played briefly. Yeah, in it came San and Diego. went real but, quick. <laughs> exactly. And then they cut it to hell and and put it out again. And I think it was retitled These Are the Days or oh, These really? Were the Days. Interesting. Something like that. Yeah. Okay, so you become obsessed with Gertrude Lawrence. You order your Lady in the Dark record. Now, one of the things about this show is that it's so huge. And once it premiered, there was not really a script and a score that matched. So it was nearly unproducible. The question always becomes, if you love Lady in the Dark, how on earth do you ever see it? I haven't. Right. So did you? I finally did. Yes. In 2015, I was able to see a production at Lyric Stage in Irving, Texas. I had been to the theater several times when I worked for Equity. The first show I saw there was actually Too Many Girls, the Rogers and Hart show. Oh my gosh. Um, Yes, the Desi Arnaz. Right. If anybody Uh has watched Being the Ricardos, they talk about Too Many Girls. Yeah, absolutely. They met while making the movie. But it it was just as bad as Harold Prince always said, as far as the script goes. <laughs> but it's extraordinary because that that company uh, uses a full orchestra with wow. the original orchestrations. So to hear that in the theater was so exciting, and I finally got to see Lady in the Dark. How cute! Love that. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the creation of the show. And in doing so, we need to discuss its creators. Yeah, let's start with Kurt Vile, because once again, like I said, it's been way too long for us to not have mentioned him. Kurt Vile was born March 2nd, 1900 in Germany. He was a voracious student of influential teachers there and really showed a lot of promise. But after World War I, his family, like, I mean, pretty much most of Germany, suffered greatly. You know, talk about Great Depression. And I think that these years when he saw the social struggle of the every, you know, the everyday family, they were probably the most informative on who he'd become as an artist, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, uh, I would definitely say so. I mean, the the interesting thing is that, you know, he was studying uh, as a classical composer. Mm hmm. So working on early sonatas and symphonic works and even some short operas. But he was obviously a man who was open to experiment and taking risks. I mean, you're exactly right. I think what's really incredible about him technically is the fact that he's such a gifted classical composer, but his theatricality is what really sets him apart. It's what makes him unique. 
and this willingness to to risk. You know, one of his big things was instead of just writing music to reflect a feeling or a character, he was really interested in irony and choosing styles, musical styles that would comment on the emotion rather than just expressing it. And I think that made him the perfect collaborator for Brecht, uh, Bertolt Brecht, who was also German and who we, by the way, we also talked a lot about him in our Chicago episode, if you want to go back and, and listen to our discussion there. But briefly, Michael, how would you summarize their theatrical philosophy? Because obviously it's something that they saw eye to eye on, at least when creating something like the Three Penny Opera. Right, right. I mean, you've 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 already sort of talked about it in the sense that they're commenting on what is happening in the action. The whole style of Brechtian theater means that the audience is supposed to be aware the entire time that they are in a theater watching actors perform for them. Right. We're this not pretending, this, like, the facade is down. We all know what's going on here. Yeah. Today, because we're so used to this, to have sets that only hint at what it is, and we accept that as the reality of the space, that's so ingrained for us today that we, you know, modern audiences can't imagine what it was like to see these kind of bare stages that they experimented on uh, to begin with. Absolutely. And what better inciting incident for that to occur than a freaking world war? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To like wake you up to, why are we pretending that everything is real? Nothing is real, right? Let's just stop pretending and call it how it is. And in calling it how it was, they called out a lot of corruption with the Three Penny Opera, and I promise we'll do an episode on that show because it just revolutionized theater. But because of it, Kurt Weill ended up fleeing Germany in the 30s when the Nazi regime started like literally interrupting performances of his works because he was you know, speaking the truth and criticizing where he saw it. He and Brecht ended up splitting up, if you will. They had a breakup. Because old Berthold ended up going like full communist and Kurt Weill was like, mm, that's maybe a little too far to the left than I'm comfortable going. So they break up. He's in America because the Three Penny Opera has unfortunately flopped on Broadway. And so he starts meeting with new collaborators, one of whom was Moss Hart. And we've talked about this guy, both in our Camelot and Merrily We Roll Along episodes. He's so influential to American theater. Uh, not only because he wrote incredible Kaufman and Hart comedies, like They Can't Take It With You, but he, too, was an innovator. It was his idea to do Lady in the Dark partially because he had started psychotherapy himself a few years earlier. He had been close to suicide and worked his way through it. And this made him realize, I have a quote here, why not show someone in the process of being psychoanalyzed and dramatize the dreams? What could be more natural than the dreams being conveyed by music and lyrics so that the plane of reality and that of the dreams would be distinct? It shows a lot of ingenuity, especially for the time. I mean, I, I have to consistently remind myself that this is the late 30s when they're, when they're starting to work on it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those ideas were just gaining a lot of traction, certainly within that New York audience that uh, would have been going to see these shows, but also with uh, the public beginning to see things 
in films that mm. uh, would be telling them sometimes good and sometimes scary stories about uh, people probing your mind. <laughs> but uh, you that's know. very true. And and really, before the art form of musical theater had become what we know it to be now. You know, we always, we love to say that the beginning of musical theater was 1943 with Oklahoma, but there were huge advancements before then. Showboat was 1927. And then the second longest running book musical between those two shows was Lady in the Dark. I -hmm. honestly didn't know that. I didn't realize what a success it was when it came out. And for it to be that experimental, for it to not even have really a way to describe itself uh, is pretty extraordinary. If you look back at all the press releases about this show, the way that they slowly divulge to the theater-going crowd that it's a musical is really interesting. At first, it's uh, they're announcing a new play by Moss Hart, which, by the way, was originally called I Am Listening, which I think is hilarious. And then the next one says okay, it's a play with incidental music by Kurt Vile, and then it becomes a play with songs, right? And now we look at it as a, a piece of musical theater. They just didn't know how to classify this thing. It was so kind of out of the, the ordinary. They finally decided on a musical play. A musical um, play. Is, is, is what they finally decided to call it. But uh, yes, you're right. It was all of that. And he had the idea of a song that haunted the character from the very beginning. So it was a song to begin mm. with. And Vile, of course, ran with the idea and, you know, kept developing and developing. And eventually Moss Hart saw the possibilities of creating what turned out to be three mini operas within that are play. the dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when it finally gets ready to open on Broadway, uh, not only is it long, but the show is enormous. It had 60 members in its equity cast, 35 stagehands, 20 musicians. This is a just an enormous musical that's essentially all about one woman. Once again, mm-hmm. another kind of unusual thing. Um, right before they open, there is a, an influenza outbreak. And the whole show has to shut down for a week. Yep, that's right. It happened even then. Shows had to close because of a flu-like outbreak amongst the cast. But specifically, Gertrude Lawrence got ill and she didn't have an understudy. So the opening was pushed back. Uh, The producers had to tell ticket holders to get to their seats on time because the show, despite having music, has no overture. It begins as a play. So they didn't want people showing up late and then not understanding what was going on. Um, They also had to tell critics to stay to the end because usually critics leave early in order to get their reviews to the paper, but there's a huge twist at the end. So if they were afraid that if critics left when they usually did, they wouldn't actually understand what the play was about. Kind of almost Hitchcockian in a way, like don't get to Psycho uh, late or else you won't won't (laughs) see Janet Janet Leigh getting, you know, murdered in the shower. Lady in in the Dark was really interesting for, for theater goers. It is also built around spectacle. This show had four turntables. Um, so take that, the, Miz. Yeah, but it it was it was an enormously complex show. The whole idea of having the four turntables was really about getting in and out of the dreams 
as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. That also meant a lot of doubles for Gertrude Lawrence. Each dream sequence starts as a beautiful fantasy and ends as a nightmare. Mm-hmm. So there's a devastated Liza at the end of each of these dreams. Often that was a double that had sort of come on Snuck in the on. confusion that yeah. happens at the end of these dreams. So the audience would truly gasp when we came back into the analyst's office and there was Gertrude Lawrence in her other outfit. It's like, wait a second, we just saw her. Yeah, right. exactly. And another convention of the time, you talk about how this is really just focused on one person. We've got no secondary uh, comic lover. No, there's no Ado you know, Annie. There's yeah, no, no yeah. it is completely focused on Liza and seen through her eyes, basically. I just wish that we had more documented from it. Because it was such a spectacle, it feels like something you'd want to, you know, go to the New York City Public Library and watch, but that just isn't possible. And also because Gertrude Lawrence was in so few films, like you don't feel like we get to take her in and enjoy her in the way that so many people were able to in that time. That being said, there are cultural landmarks in here that are not only worth exploring, they're worth talking about. And there is some gorgeous music with incredible lyrics by one Ira Gershwin, anyone? You ever heard of that name? I mean, we I, we won't go into the deep dive on the Gershwins because I'm, we still need to cover <laughs> Girl Crazy or something uh, by them. But this was Ira Gershwin's first musical without his brother. You know, George, George Gershwin had passed away. And I, I believe Moss Hart contacted Ira and said, hey, we're doing this crazy play with music. Kurt Vile's composing. I'm writing you in. And he was like, yeah. And it's really great stuff. So intelligent on his end. So we've got three masterminds working at the peak of their talents. And I'm really excited to go through the show with you. Now, before we do that, I want everybody to listen to a little conversation I had with someone who lovingly calls themselves Dr. Drama. Hi, Elisa Hurwitz. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. So for people who don't know, please tell us why you are called Dr. Drama. Because <laughs> I'm so dramatic. <laughs> right. That's the only reason. That's right. <laughs> um, so in my, in my day job, I'm a clinical psychologist. And in my personal life, I'm passionate about musical theater. And um uh, it's going on about five years ago. I, I put that professional knowledge together with that that personal passion and created Doctor Drama, and the name just kind of supposed to be a cute reference to both both pieces of that puzzle. To talk about mental health, uh, the idea was to talk about mental health in a way that's accessible. Um, to kind of facilitate just normalizing conversations around mental health. Um, Amen. And yes, and, and that and that's and that's how it was born. I thought I, you know, I thought I had something to offer, and that's really what this is. Is, a, is you know, Doctor Drop is really just mostly uh, an offering, um, a sharing. It's it's taken me to in directions I didn't think it would go, and that's been wonderful and really meaningful to connect with people. I completely connect with you on this level because it's one of the reasons why I started the podcast is that I felt that the musical theater art form was an amazing launching point for us to understand culture, society, history, and ourselves. 
And I think that that's really what you're doing is like the context of these stories brings us so much insight to what it means to be human and uh, and everything, <laughs> all the joys and, and crap that comes with it. So I appreciate that. I, I feel like I'm meeting a kindred spirit. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, even the sh- this show is one of the that we're going to talk about is one of the ones that that really deals with uh, psychology as a field head on. Mm-hmm. And we're getting more of those now. But every show really is about psychology because, I mean, the, the whole the whole conceit of expressing yourself, um, your inner life through words, through song, through melody, through dance is, you know, is itself about psychology. It doesn't matter if the show has nothing mm. to do with it on the surface or not. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny because Lady in the Dark is, you know, 1941. And yet it also, it's one of the, like you said, it's one of the few musicals that deals with mental health and and specifically the medical field, the mental health field, in a way that like maybe Next to Normal does for you know, the audiences in the 2000s. So if you can, can you provide us with a little bit of context of how, uh, they always called it psychoanalysis early on. Uh, can you give us some context about what the culture was around that and what medical professionals maybe like yourself were facing in in that culture? Yeah, it's really valuable to understand what psychoanalysis is in the context of the culture and the time. So it was born, people know like the the father of uh, psychology, Sigmund Freud, and, and it was born, he was of a time in, you know, in Austria when there were he was surrounded by these um, this dehumanization of uh, his people, being Jewish people, and um, mm. and with the rise of Nazism, and uh, and trying to you know, deeply understand what makes us connected to our humanity, what makes us who we are. So it came out of being dehumanized, you know, this drive to understand wow. our humanity. Um, really powerful in that way at the same time. It's incredibly paternalistic at, at this time and the, at the mm. beginning of it. So, it, you know, it's, uh, of course, you know, the medical field is predominated by men. I mean, if there was anything outside of a white man, it was an exception. Um, mm-hmm. And that definitely plays into, I think, how this show was written. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the very patriarchal paternalistic um, ideas. It also comes out of a, you know, it comes out of a medical model. And so now, you know, when you think of going to see your therapist, you don't think of going to see somebody with an MD. You think of going to see someone with a PsyD or a PhD or a licensed social worker or a family counselor. Mm-hmm. It became its its own field. But at that time, it was medical doctors. It was psychiatrists um, who, who provided wow. it. And it was uh, a treatment protocol that included three to five, sessions a week sitting sitting on laying on the couch um literally like literally laying, laying on, on the, couch. the couch yes <laughs> yeah wow that's that's a big commitment then so at the beginning of the musical when liza comes in and you know expects everything to be done in one session i mean I, i'm like relatable content right. first of all. <laughs> totally <laughs> but also they are talking about a process that is much more involved than even once or twice a week Yes, much more involved, um, much more of a of a long term time commitment. It was not um, what we now call evidence based um, treatment, mm-hmm. where you know we we have studied and researched what works, what parts, what components of treatment are effective, and what have nothing to do with a positive treatment outcome, and mm. and 
you know, and also measuring change, measuring um, improvement, whether that be objective or, or subjective, having a mix of both is really valuable. This was not that. It also, I think, is worth noting that it was also in the context of a time when people weren't necessarily thinking a lot about their inner lives. I think a show that's on my mind right now because I'm rewatching it's Mad Men that's so beautifully dramatized oh, um, in a character sure. like Betty Draper, where her inner life is expressing itself in in a kind of and actually in a classic way that um, that we would see somebody in psychoanalysis. She had numbness uh, in her hands, which is oh, right. physiologically impossible. I remember that? Yeah. Now. So it's psycho the psychosomatic expression of uh, you know the somatic expression of what's going on psychologically. And, okay. Yeah. Sorry. So I I I was on my own train of thought. Yeah. That's not physiologically possible. No. Like that that is a sign of your brain getting in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Something's going on. There's some, that's not physiologically possible um, because of the way that our nerves are to have numbness only in your hands. And so sometimes people will come to us. It's much rarer now for people to come with us with psychosomatic problems at that level, because we do have a lot more conversation around our inner lives. And so people on a day-to-day basis have a better understanding. In 1941, we didn't. So the, the genesis of psychoanalysis had a lot to do with these kind of psychosomatic problems. Most of his mm. patients, Freud's patients, were women. And he often would uh, sexualize their problems whether or not that was warranted. So that's a factor as well, kind of in in the the context of where we come to with Liza Elliott, who is seeing a psychoanalyst, um, which is also, I should say, very New York. (laughs) It's very, very New York. (laughs) This show is very New York. This show is very New York. And um, there are still psychoanalysts, like absolutely there are psychoanalysts in New York, Mm. in the city. I think there are still uh, a good chunk in San Francisco and outside of that. Not really. like I, I, and then no, no, I work in New Hampshire. There are no psychoanalysts here. There are psychologists, <laughs> <laughs> but no psychoanalysts. Sure. Sure. So she, interesting. Yeah. And now she, you know, here she is someone who has a problem that she can't understand why. And so that is a reason why people, somebody in 1941 would go see a psychoanalyst. That's really interesting. So I have a little audio clip I want to play for everybody. This is from a radio play version of Lady in the Dark that Gertrude Lawrence recorded. So it's very, uh, I mean, it's very radio. I'm really excited for everybody to hear it. But it's when we first meet Liza and she enters into her psychoanalyst's office. Here we go. Well, a room full of sunlight and flowers. Psychoanalysis with charm. (laughs) I hope you approve. Please sit down. Dr. Brooks, may I tell you something? I resent this visit, this necessity to ask for your help. There's nothing strange in my life. I'm doing the kind of work I like, and I'm quite successful at it. A splendid man is in love with me, and I return his feelings. But something has gone wrong with me lately. I can't tell you what or why. Not unusual, Miss Elliot. Let's say that if you did know, you wouldn't be here. Dr. Brooks, I've come here in desperation. I fought this this thing. I've tried to pull myself out, but I can't. I've clung desperately to my work to try to steady myself, but now that's beginning to go, too. Okay, first of all, the accent, the drama. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> but also, like, I I am speaking out of turn, so please feel free to correct me. Maybe not that different from people you see? Minus the accent, yes. <laughs> sure. The, put on, right? <laughs> people don't come to my place. Dr. Horowitz, I don't right. know what's going on with me. No, yes. right, right. I've tried to escape myself. <laughs> I wish. Um, yeah, 
yes, with with less flowery language, like people come and say yeah. something's wrong and I don't understand it. Often, sometimes we'll say, I didn't want to have to need this help, but I don't mm. know what else to do. Right. Yeah. And for me, I connect to the idea of all of my old tricks aren't working. Yeah. I'm going, you know, work used to solve all my problems. Work is no longer solving my problems. Yes. Whatever it is, we've like created these coping mechanisms that sometimes just aren't working anymore. Yes. Yeah. And, and that is, that is often, you know, in different words, in different language, um, exactly what people are saying when, when they come in. Now, I know that we've been through, we currently are in a pandemic and, and, um, and that's been really hard and we've lost a lot of people because of COVID-19. But I've also read so often that we are also in the midst of a mental health crisis because of it uh, that has really nothing to do with respiratory problems. You know, it is in and of itself its own uh, illness. And I want to touch on that a little bit because I, I know that Liza's having a, a hard time coming to, to ask for help. And what would you say to people who may find themselves in a similar position? Therapy is for humans. Um, I, I will say that until my last dying breath. Therapy is for humans. <laughs> needing, not even needing, but wanting support through tr- trying to get through life and being a human is not a weakness. Life is, is in, it gets, just gets increasingly complicated. And that, so as we try to understand ourselves in, in, a, in a more and more complicated world, uh, it is so valuable to have somebody as a navigator. And then that's mm. what I see, how I see my role and my colleagues' roles as, as um, therapists is that we're navigators. We are not, we're not the driver. We're not the fixer. We're not the solver. We just, we know the roads. And so we can, mm. you got your foot on the gas pedal on the brake. You let us guide you through these woods. Mm. That's beautiful. And, and I, I want to say this actually follow up to what I just said also that it's not that, that we have it figured out. Mm. Right. So I could be driving down those same roads and still hit some potholes and, you know, have some car problems. I'm, I'm human too. Uh, what I, what I have to offer, what we have to offer is our, you know, experience and training and education and expertise. I just want to say that caveat. It's not because we have it life figured out. Well, let's talk a little bit more about her because I, she's such a fascinating character. I'm, mm. I know that's why Gertrude Lawrence was so, you know, excited to play her. It's also a path full of potholes, as you as you mentioned <laughs> earlier, because it's 1941 and we've got some men who have decided to write about women in leadership and in a beauty industry with relationships. So it's just it's a minefield to kind of go through with our 2022 perspective. But still, I feel a lot of compassion for her and I love her. I love this character. Mm. So what what's your take on her? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, wh- where my mind's going with with what you're saying is um, a little bit of a tangent. Um, so if you'll indulge, indulge me for Please. a second. Um, <laughs> I, I found it really interesting that so Moss Hart, the book writer, as you were saying, was really inspired to write this story by his experience in psychoanalysis with, uh, I don't know, I don't remember the, the psychoanalyst name, so forgive me, but um, what was interesting about him, about his psychoanalyst, he was of his time also, so had these uh, sure. these notable uh, uh, new ideas, one of which was that postpartum depression was caused by ambivalence about becoming a mother. 
which is so horribly misogynistic. Um, wow. <laughs> which you can just see such a direct line to, I think, to what Moss Hart wrote for this show about decision making mm. and ambivalence and women's free will. Oof, that cracks open a place that I did not know about with mm. this. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, valuable uh, context uh, for her decisions as a character in the in the show. Wow. Now, talk to me a little bit about like as a as a theater fan, how you process some of these things that we've been talking about with the fact that this show was groundbreaking in its mm. time, also has a, an incredibly perfect score by Kurt Vile and Ira Gershwin. What what do we do with this? Do we just sit around and wait for somebody to fix the script? Because also, you know, Moss Hart, what a what a genius in, in his own right. Or do we just let it lie and have conversations like this? What do, what do you think? Gosh, it's so complex. I mean... Mm. There's no one answer. <laughs> no, right? of course not, right? It is such a great piece and it's and it's very it's very much like a hidden gem. Like people don't know about this show. And honestly, I don't know that I would have known about it. As I've said to you, I have not seen a production of it, but I think most most of us have not. And uh, gosh, I would love to see a production of this. Oh, cool. Really? I would, I would love. I I was not expecting you to say that. That's awesome. (laughs) I think, (laughs) I think there's so many ways to take material we would view as problematic today and, and, and present it now. I, I think it's worth producing. It's such a great piece. Um, mm-hmm. And if we, at the very least, if we value that this is of its time, then we can sympathize with the character being stuck that those were the choices that she saw. That's it. And because, you know, frankly, there are so many people, I would say more so uh, women, who feel that they are, they are limited to the choice of who to marry, not whether or not mm. to marry. That's not, that hasn't completely gone. Not at all. I see so many people who got married and had kids by default and they're not happy. Mm. And because it wasn't, it wasn't right for them and they didn't know. There you go. Yeah. I love shows where we look back and think, wow, we've come a long way, but also (laughs) maybe not so much. Right. Dr. Hurwitz. I'm so grateful you came on. I'm so grateful you asked me. This was such a wonderful opportunity to talk about a show that um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people I would just encourage to listen to that music because your heart will not be sorry. It was daring. um, And I, and I think theater that's daring is a, is a wonderful thing. Um, I think theater that's just simply entertaining is a wonderful thing. I think just live theater is wonderful because it taps into taps into our logical brain you know, thinking about the plot and the words and the, you know, and what we're seeing and what's happening on the stage, but the feeling, you know, the feeling from the melody, the feeling from the colors, the lighting, the feeling from the movement that we're, that we're seeing. And it's so, yeah, it just, you know, to get out of our thinking brains and just to get into our feelings is, uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful experience. And to do that in community with other people is, um, I was going to say, and then turn it into a social experience makes it all the more special. Amen. That's amazing. How do we follow you and your thoughts and everything you're up to? Yeah, I'm on um, my website, which is drdrama.com. So everything is D-R-D-R-A-M-A on Instagram and Twitter uh, at the Dr. Drama. Awesome. Thank you again. And I hope to meet you. Maybe we'll go see a show together. I would love that. (laughs) 
All right, Michael, we're going to go through the show now, even though I haven't seen it. I was, however, able to read the entire script and listen along with my recording of the show that Jay Records did back in the 90s with Maria Friedman, which is one of, I think, the few recordings of the entire score. Maria Friedman is so over the top, and I'm kind of obsessed with it. But that has been what I studied going into this. Mm -hmm. So starting out, no overture. We start this show like a play. And the play begins in the office of a therapist by the name of Dr. Brooks. Dr. Brooks is expecting a patient. Liza Elliott comes in. Now, at this point in time, if people were coming to see Gertrude Lawrence, Gertrude Lawrence gets a star entrance, right, where everybody applauds. And when Liza Elliott comes in, what do we see? How would you describe who we see? It isn't a glamorous star. No, no. And that's certainly what people would have been expecting. Mm. So suddenly we see this professional woman, no makeup, uh, walking on stage, no jewelry, no big picture hat. Uh, none of the things that we would expect for a star entrance. A very plain, serious suit. Yeah. And it's right at the top of the show, mm. um, which also, you know, you wanted to warm up the audience a little sure, bit. Sure, there's uh, no here comes right. Dolly. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. So it would have been a huge surprise and uh, would have telegraphed to everybody, this is something different. Mm, 100%. She's coming because it's her last resort. She's heard all the stories about these quacks who make you sit and talk about your childhoods, and then you realize that's why you don't like anchovies, right? She's not entirely bought in on this whole concept, but the fact of the matter is, is that she is non-functioning. She is the editor of this wildly popular Vogue-like magazine called Allure. Allure? Allure, yeah. And uh, has been doing it for 10 years. She started the magazine. And so she's always just been work, 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 work. And now she can't really do it anymore. She's prone to, you know, fits of anxiety. She sleeps randomly for long periods of time and can't get her life together. And she doesn't know what's going on. So she's come to this doctor with the thought that maybe, just maybe, he can provide some insight. Right, exactly. What Hart does, uh, you know, pretty brilliantly is boil it down to she cannot make a decision between these two covers for the upcoming magazine, mm, the, Easter, the cover Easter cover and the circus cover. Right. So the, that... And, and interesting that one, the Easter cover is very traditional, what you would expect at that time for an Easter cover. And then you've got something wild and crazy on the other side, the right. circus, almost uncontrollable, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, and uh, it it stands in, you know, as metaphors for all of this stuff that's raging beneath her. That's great. So the doctor invites her to lay down, kind of clear her mind, and just talk about whatever comes to mind. And the thing that comes to mind is this melody. Can you hum it and not get in trouble by the Curvile Foundation? <laughs> Gorgeous! <laughs> There's that Robbie Award-winning actor at work. Um, <laughs> so this little motif is the trigger for all of her dreams. As she focuses on this little melody, she is, remembers a dream that she had recently, and we're taken into that dream. 
the stage completely transforms. And this first section is called the glamour dream. Now, it's all very much heightened, I would say, right? Absolutely. Well, we've got the freedom of, you know, the surreal world. Surreal. Thank you. That's the word. 100%. They're taking full advantage of that. We have this chorus of boys who is now giving, like, the lead up to a star entrance. Truly, they're talking, they're singing about this woman who's the most Mm -hmm. glamorous woman in the world. She is Cleopatra. She is everybody, right, who has ever been uh, adored and, and, and loved. And this leads to Liza's entrance into the dream. And now she is a full glammed out gorgeous lady with red hair which she Mm -hmm. didn't have in real life, right? Right. And that's what this whole sequence is about, is her living this super glamorous life. She sings a song called uh, One... One Life to Live? Yes. Mm -hmm. Great song. You know, she's rousing the troops, telling them, you know, it's just completely different from the Liza that we met in the play. And then what happens? How does this kind of slowly disintegrate? Yeah, uh, of course, the music has so much to do with what's going on in Mm. all of these sequences. Vile came up with music that would give us the feel of each of these dream sequences. You're right. And if I remember correctly, one of the things that keeps happening in these dreams is that we hear a song and it's really fun and energetic. And then it's sung again a little bit later in the dream, but with a really threatening rhythm underneath it it's exactly Exactly. the same song but now it sounds completely different right right that's exactly what happens in this we have at the beginning that that praise of the most beautiful stunning uh, uh, everything woman in the world oh girl of the moment but we end with that as well what Mm. what happens is uh each of the men in her life uh you know her real life plays different roles Very Wizard of Oz. Yeah, typically metaphors of who they are in her real life in the dreams. So um, suddenly there are uh, soldiers here directly from the president. He wants to have Liza on the two-cent stamp. That's right. she is supposed to pose right then and there to be painted in front of this big audience of nightclubbers. That's right. So here comes the painter. Yeah. Now, you know, thematically, it's important that this is Charlie Johnson, who also works with Liza at Allure. He arrives as the soldier who's going to paint her. But what happens is that he paints the true Liza, the real life Liza. So what happens is she takes a look at the portrait. The portrait's revealed. She screams. Everybody's like, oh, it looks like, like Liza. who is but, this? Yeah, but why is Liza so un-Liza-like, mm. as uh, some of Gershwin's fabulous lyrics go? <laughs> it, it devolves into this craziness with Liza running around, and that's where we do that little switch so that we can come back into the psychiatrist's office at the end of this craziness. I love them chanting, who's the real Liza, who's the real Liza, mm. right? Once we're back in the doctor's office, Dr. Brooks basically says, all right, well, that's all the time we have today, but I just want to leave you with one question. 
And that is, why have you dedicated yourself to making women beautiful when you are not interested in conforming to any of those ideas or norms? And it's almost as though no one has asked her this and she's never thought of it. Right, right. But she, it's obviously very much taken from this dream in that there is this beautiful version of her, this like very stereotypically beautiful version of her. And then there is how she presents herself to society. And there is a disconnect. And the doctor's proposing the question, what's up with that? Why do you have that disconnect? And Mm -hmm. so she goes out of the office excited to come back, honestly, because she's found something new. It doesn't mean she has any answers and she's still completely <laughs> uh, <laughs> filled, racked with anxiety and in the time. <laughs> uh, but there's something new. So leaving the office, she now goes to her office and we meet all of her employees. There at the magazine, there's Maggie, who's like the second in charge, right? She has various secretaries. What is happening at the office on this particular day, is the most handsome Hollywood actor by the name of your better Randy Randy Curtis. Randy Curtis is having his photo taken for the magazine, and the reason we know that is because a fabulous character by the name of Russell Paxton walks in and is like, "Ladies, I have just been taking the picture of the hottest guy in the world. I am completely vapored, and you all are going to feel exactly the same." Which leads me to another incredible thing about the show. We got a gay character in, in in this musical. He's not out. He's not a proud homosexual, but he is 100% a gay character. Absolutely. Yeah, that is true. I don't know uh, whether you want to get into uh, the Moss Hart uh, sort of... Oh, that he's possibly uh, bi at, at the very least? Uh, yes, uh, you can, you can certainly see a gay subtext to this whole story. I I don't know if you want to go into that or not. Wow. Okay. So hold on, Michael. Are you telling me that the lady in the dark might be Moss Hart? Because that's the coolest thing I've ever learned today. Well, definitely. There were always those rumors about Moss Hart. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can look at the subtext of this and and read into it a lot of gay things. While Russell Paxton's character is not the first gay person in a Broadway show, he is certainly comfortable in his own skin. And he's also not gay evil, you know? No. His flamboyance isn't being used to destroy anybody. Uh, He's actually one of the audience's favorite people in the show. Right. And, of course, in the original production, he was played by Danny Kaye in a star-making performance. So not only did Lady in the Dark give us everything that we've talked about so far, it gave us freaking Danny Kaye. Absolutely. Well, that's really cool. So we meet these people, but now we also meet these three love interests for Liza. One is the guy who helped her start the magazine. He basically funded the entire thing. Who's married. His name's Nesbitt, right? His last name's Nesbitt. Kendall Nesbitt. Kendall Nesbitt. Then we have Charlie Johnson, who is in charge of advertising. He is uh, just the poster boy for toxic masculinity and disgusts me um, beyond all measure. He's constantly pinching the model's behinds and saying horrible things to Liza. 
Uh, she has infamously thrown a paperweight at his head in a recent meeting because he's just constantly trying to get under her skin. Probably more likely he just wants her job. Then we've got guy number three, which is this Hollywood hunk. So all three of these guys, hugely different. And according to Moss Hart, were also meant to symbolize different parts of Liza. You know, so often female characters in storytelling, especially musical theater, their journeys revolve around men and being chosen by one or ending up with one. And in Lady in the Dark, that is the case. However, they've gone, they've kind of flipped it on its head because now it's not about she needs a man to feel complete. It's she needs to look at these different men and realize what they represent about herself. Is mm-hmm. that fair? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that audiences of the time necessarily would have picked up on that. Oh, absolutely but, uh, not. Yeah. But I, but there was a, um, in the script, there was a lengthy foreword that Moss Hart had written mm-hmm. um, that was almost as long as the first act. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in it, that was one of his big intentions was about using these men as a, as a reflection of her inner world. When she finally does enter her office, she's bombarded with all sorts of things, which essentially triggers her into falling asleep on her couch. Like she just can't take it anymore. And so she, uh, she just collapses on her couch and falls asleep and once again begins another dream sequence. This is the wedding dream. The wedding sequence, right? Mm-hmm. It starts off with all of the kids from her high school kind of talking about Liza. Right. Basically everyone's saying that they liked her, right? Except for one girl. Yeah. One girl thinks she's stuck up. But sure. but yeah, everybody else. But but also their memories of her are pretty vague. Mm. You know, she obviously didn't stand out in any way. Gotcha. And then Liza appears in a white dress. It continues with a, a, a definitely glamorized Liza in this, uh, well, in all of the dreams, of course. Yeah, we're so. back. Thank you. We're back to, to glamour post Liza. And Hollywood Hunk appears and starts singing to her. Which, mm-hmm. uh, of course, is uh, a, a gorgeous, gorgeous melody and some great lyrics. It but is. Um, it too is just that extra bit of overblown you know the verse is all about the pleasure dome of kubakan and all of that but uh, <laughs> you the know the gardens then, of old yes. babylon right exactly so <laughs> it continues with what you talked about in the first dream of that heightened surreal quality 100% so with this these wedding bells start ringing out yeah right And she's looking for everybody. She doesn't know. It's her wedding day. Everyone's telling her it's her wedding day. And when this guy who was her, you know, the sugar daddy who started the magazine, when he appears to to marry her, she is beside herself. She she doesn't want this to to be right. Mm hmm. Which, of course, is reflecting from her real life because he has finally left his wife and is ready to commit to Liza and she's very conflicted and realizes that she doesn't actually love him. Right. Moving that metaphor on, the minister is Charlie Johnson. Mm, Mr. Who, Toxic himself. Right. 
then the choruses and uh, Charlie are, are, are beginning to say things like, you know, this woman knows she does not love this man. And she's saying, oh, no, 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 that isn't true. I do. Interesting. So within this section, you've got Hollywood hunk declaring his love. You've got Nesbitt, the sugar daddy, coming to the altar. And then you've got toxic guy playing the minister. So when she goes back to Dr. Brooks to discuss this dream, he points out yet another strange contradiction. Hollywood star sings to you, you reject him. The guy who leaves his wife to come to you and you don't want to marry him. So now not only are you basically turning your back on beauty while, you know, running this beauty magazine, every time you have an opportunity at love, you are actively turning it down. In fact, is it possible that you've been with a married man because then you wouldn't ever have to commit to him? And that freaks her out so much that she refuses to go back to the therapist and she leaves. Right. Then she's reminded that she had promised to go out with Randy Curtis. You're exactly right. So he comes to pick her up. He's in full tails. She still looks like she has looked in in real life. She's like, oh, my gosh, I need to change. And he says something like, oh, please don't. Like, I love that you are you. I love that you look like this. And she says, absolutely not. If we're going out, then I need to look better. So she, like, basically takes this fancy dress off of the mannequin that's supposed to be, you know, used for a model, changes into that, and they go out on the town. That is true. And I think it's worth talking a little bit about the mores of this this woman in distress, and this is the first act curtain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this woman in distress strips off her dress, on, mm. you know, there on stage. Uh, so she's in her slip and puts on this designer gown so that she can go out with him. Even to that urban audience in 1941 would have been completely unexpected and quite a little coup de théâtre there for the sure first act uh, finale. Yeah, not even like a big musical number to end that first act. No, which also... In fact, the last thing that she says is, I'm fine, let me alone. And she shakes off and goes out the door. Right. Curtain is down. All right, so act two opens... And we're back at Liza's office, and she has once again completely uh, turned her back on therapy. Everybody in her office is happy about it, particularly Allison, the super chic Allison, who instead has given her a book about astrology. And there are a lot of great jokes about astrology in this. It's when she's just sitting there looking at the astrology book that she starts hearing voices. There are all these disembodied voices criticizing her on her indecision. You can't decide on the cover. You can't do any of your work anymore. And that all funnels into this entrance of parade performers. They're all performing. And now we're in this this crazy dream sequence called The Greatest Show on Earth, right? Well, that's that's what they're singing. As, they're singing as, yeah. as as they start that. Yeah, uh, people usually call it the circus dream. But the other thing is, she has actually walked into the circus cover at this moment. Mm. You know, following those psychological clues that uh, Hart has peppered the story with. So, in a way, her subconscious has made a choice. Okay, what does this one look like if we go into? the circus cover, what is that like? 
there's a ringmaster. The ringmaster is Russell Paxton. And even though it's a circus, it's also, I mean, I already brought up Chicago. It's also a, a trial. Mm-hmm. And they're putting Liza on trial, saying this woman can't make up her mind and we are going to find her guilty. So now they bring in Charlie Johnson, a.k.a. Toxic Man, for the prosecution. They also bring in Randy, who's the Hollywood hunk, who is her lawyer, you know, who is defending everything she is. Right. Is Nesbitt there as well? Yeah. Nesbitt is there, uh, you know, as the aggrieved party. So, Oh, of course. He's who is, you know, suing her, essentially. Exactly, yeah. Her defense is that she keeps saying that she gave the married guy her heart, but she never gave him her word. Mm-hmm. I never promised that I would marry him. I only gave him my heart. Now, explain to me, because I th- believe you probably know, how do we get into Tchaikovsky from here? What is what is it that sparks this really fun patter song? This is a true throwback to the early musicals. Say too many girls. You know, oh, okay, they sure. had they had the Manhattan song in the second act. Uh I mean we still have them after Oklahoma, Steam Heat being uh, you know, another example. It has nothing to do with the plot. But Danny Kay had been picked up as this wonderful Borscht Belt entertainer. They wanted to do something special with him beyond what he was doing in in the show, uh, which probably would have been enough anyway, but this solidified it. Ira actually wrote this as a student and published it, the the Russian composers, sort of as a poem at that point. Mm. Vile came up with this very propulsive sound to go underneath it. I was so entranced with this that I insisted on doing it as a freshman in our talent show a cappella because I had no way of finding a score for it. Oh my gosh, um, you did. And yeah, uh, if I did not get the show-stopping applause uh, that Danny Kay got, I think I mostly got people scratching their heads over... Like, what on uh, earth did we just this, see? ...this kid that uh, already I'm sure they were scratching their heads <laughs> And honestly, I think a modern audience would probably watch this and just also scratch their heads and be like, what just happened? As I do when reading it. I'm like, is there a reference that takes us into this moment that I am not getting? Well, the song you mentioned when, uh, you know, uh, when a maid gives her heart but does not give her word, that whole sequence there. At the end, the judge at that point, he says, uh, Charming, who wrote that music? And the chorus says Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky, I love Russian composers. And then he does it. Look, if you thought it was impossible to stop the show in 38 seconds, right? (laughs) Uh, Danny Kay did it with this number. Mm -hmm. And which then you have brought to my attention as we were talking about doing this episode. If it was too big of a showstopper, then it's taken all of the attention away from the leading lady. You sent me this great piece of writing. And where did you find it again? It's from uh, Dazzler, which is a a biography of Moss Hart. But, you know, I've I've read everybody's versions of what happened uh, opening night in this story. And I think this sort of grabs all the important elements in a fairly concise manner. Okay, I'm going to read it for everybody. It says, During Kay's number, Lawrence was on stage, Gertrude Lawrence, sitting on a swing and passively watching him kidnap her audience. 
Moss remembered, they kept applauding and applauding, and in the back of the theater, I was saying, shh, trying to quiet them. He knew the more they applauded, the more likely the song would be cut. Moss continued, Danny kept bowing generously to Gertie as if to indicate she would sing next, and the more he bowed generously, the more the audience applauded. Gertie just looked at him, and finally she saluted and walked to the footlights and then sang Jenny, the song that comes after this, as she had never rehearsed it, with bumps and grinds like a striptease, and completely topped him. The number allowed Liza to break through her former inhibited self to become a wildly carefree woman. Obviously, that's why we're in the circus, right? Uh, Gershwin called Lawrence's performance a complete devastation of the audience and noted the ovation for Jenny lasted twice as long as the one for Tchaikovsky. Lady in the Dark had been stopped twice in a matter of minutes, just as the show neared its climax. Woo! That's so exciting to read. It is. What's extraordinary about her is she used the popularity of that number to take her to that next level because she was having trouble with the number. And she finally Not really her type of gig, this type of well, song. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. And that, of course, is also why the audience ate it up. They'd mm. never seen anything like it. I mean, you know, we talked about her stripping off her dress uh, earlier in the show. Here she is. Um, Bumping and grabbing. Having, yeah, picked up uh, Gypsy Rose Lee's uh, choreography and went out there and it was just one surprise after another. You could not at all think ahead and figure, oh, this is what's going to happen here. And I mean, what a song, too. Right. The Saga of Jenny, Mm -hmm. a great Ira Gershwin lyric that is telling the story of this woman, Jenny, who constantly made decisions throughout her life. Right. Every verse is that it is a different time in her life. And the decision that she makes always leads to an outcome that she didn't want or probably well, definitely didn't expect and probably didn't want. Right. And so from this song, we learn don't make up your mind, because if you do, you'll probably get the crap end of the stick. (laughs) (laughs) And that is her case. Like, that's her testimony that she's left with is like, everything in the world has taught me, don't make a choice, or else you'll get what you didn't want. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I feel like so many moments in this show influence musical theater to come. The saga, this whole sequence, I mean, so much of Lady in the Dark reminds me of Follies. Uh, the Saga of Jenny 100% reminds me of uh, Lucy and Jesse, but the inner workings of these characters really sets the bar high for psychological musical theater writing for years and years to come. Decades, in fact. Absolutely, yeah. After Jenny, once again, turns into a nightmare with the entire circus chanting at her, make up your mind, make up your mind, Mm -hmm. um, in this really kind of scary whisper, now we're back into the therapist's office. And I think that this last dream had scared her so much that she, you know, finally swallowed her pride and went back to the therapist. Right. This is the moment where we finally get some answers. We flash back to Liza being a child. Um, we first see her with a mother who looks identical to how she looks in her fantasy sequences. Red hair glamorous. Her father is constantly saying how beautiful she is and constantly saying how ugly Liza is. Mm -hmm. 
Then mom dies, and all of the the sadness that she has experienced as a girl goes away when with the mother's death. So now is kind of added on this guilt that she doesn't feel bad about her mom dying. She goes to high school, and a boy has broken up with the girl who was voted like most beautiful girl. And he comes and he's to, he's also the handsomest. Oh, he's the most. Yeah, yeah. you're right. He's, he's the handsomest he's, boy. He's ben. Yeah. And he comes to Liza and asks her, like, if they can go to the dinner together. Right. Like the, mm-hmm. the little banquet dinner. And she she's stunned because the most handsome boy is choosing her. So they sit together and it's this really tender moment where she begins to sing a song And at last, we hear the full song of this little melody that has been stuck in Liza's head the entire show. Right. The song is called My Ship. Incredibly popular song. Julie Andrews herself said it is her favorite song ever written. And what is special about this song? What do you think? There is something really hauntingly beautiful about it. There is. There's a beauty, but also there's such a sadness about this there there there's so many competing elements in this song of course in the show it's been set up so beautifully because you know we've just been waiting to find out what this is why can't she remember the lyrics uh you know why would a childhood song be this and and it's it's all of those things because it's a childhood song it is simple viola at the top of his game being absolutely simple but completely haunting Hmm. uh it's so simple sounding and so extraordinarily complex as far as the emotions it touches. Well said, Michael. Thank you for that. That's much better than I could have said. Oh, um, I doubt it. No, truly, that was wonderful. After she sings this song, the most beautiful girl shows up and wants to talk to the most handsome boy. The most handsome boy is like, okay, I guess I'll talk to you. And she's waiting for him to come back and he doesn't come back. So, you know, she's devastated. And then we're back in the psychiatrist's office for the quickest solution to somebody's problem that the, analysis a, is ever given. <laughs> it's a really quick diagnosis. Basically, what Brooke says is, uh, you seem to be allergic to beauty. And it all stems from the fact that your mom was always considered such a beauty and you were not. And that is why... You have started this magazine, and that is why you keep shunning men away. And I both understand this and hate this so much. (laughs) (laughs) Because it may be true for her. It may be true for this character. But in storytelling at this point, to take the point of view that this woman is essentially a CEO only because she's not pretty is so incredibly damaging. Absolutely. And hence we come to the black ketchup, right? Once again, that doesn't mean that there isn't an element of truth to that, Mm -hmm. that we see ourselves as unworthy of whatever could come our way. And so therefore we actively reject it and go to great and sometimes deceptively (laughs) uh, impressive lengths to make sure that that happens in our own lives. But... What happens after this is that she goes to her office. She's feeling, you know, empowered. She tells 
Nesbitt, the married guy that she doesn't want to marry him. She's excited about the Hollywood hunk until he reveals his feelings, which are essentially that he feels very insecure and loves that she's strong and not beautiful so that he can be weak and beautiful, uh, which is really bonkers. And be taken care of. And be taken care of, right? So that he doesn't have to work. And she's like, oh, that is absolutely not what I want. And then... That leaves old toxic masculinity who waltzes in and says, hey, I'm supposed to apologize to you for everything that I've done. And I guess I will. But the best I can say is that I want your job. I resent that you're my boss, but I actually like you as a woman. And I don't know how to reconcile the two things. And so she says, well, I have an idea. Why don't we be bosses together and also like fall in love? Now, that is a very, very black and white way of saying it. There's a lot more nuance layered in there. But that is kind of how this show ends. And how do you feel about that? This is actually the crux of of the problem with the show. Um, you know, as you say, it, it actually wraps up so quickly. I didn't even remember how quickly. Mm. It's like a half a page of dialogue. Right. But importantly, they share the song. That she is the starts, sweetest thing. You are 100%. She starts to hum it again, as is her want. Yeah. And uh, he starts singing it. He knows Aww, it. That he is remembers really sweet. it from childhood. And they sing it together. And she says, I remember the words now. Meaning mm-hmm. like, I mean, that I is know the all full the words, arc. Yes. I know all the words. Yeah. And like, how beautiful is that? Truly. Exactly. So it is the one piece of music we hear in the realistic section as Mm. well, which just uh, bookends this piece so beautifully. Mm. Um, So all of those things are really right. The problem is a modern audience is just not going to be happy with her choice in the end. Because ultimately, the only way to solve her problem is for her to be demoted. And the only way for him to be forgiven for his awful behavior is to be promoted. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. So, uh, yeah, it is the real reason that nobody is going to be able to revive this in a commercial sense ever again. Maybe, maybe, like Douglas, with... maybe Douglas Carter Bean will come along, come along <laughs> and write a new script for it. I don't know. I don't know what the heart of state would say about that. Well, but. I don't know what the uh, look the Kurt Vile Foundation. They are sticklers, and they I don't absolutely know if they would, are. I don't know if they'd have any uh, say in it, but but Kurt Vile, you know, coming from that classical background, orchestrated his shows. Almost absolutely. every note of this was orchestrated personally by him. I mean, even Bernstein did it. So, right. and that's, that's you know, point. they're very similar in the sense of their training and stuff, but. As I say, we have to realize that this would have been a happy ending for the audiences that saw it in 1941. And was groundbreaking all along the way to get there, you know? Yeah. It it is one thing to be a groundbreaking musical. It's another one to leave the audience feeling really happy about having seen your groundbreaking musical. (laughs) Right. And uh, to, to give them both is pretty extraordinary. 
Michael, thank you so much for doing this with me. Truly. Oh, it's it, it's been a treat. I don't know if anyone will listen to it, but I'm really happy we did it. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. We also have a TikTok. You can subscribe to Patreon, exclamation point, for only $1 a month where you'll get exclusive episodes and bonus materials. Uh, we also have a tea Public store. There are so many ways for you to connect with us in this beautiful podcast community uh, that I am so grateful for. Hey, Michael, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? I am ancient, so uh, <laughs> essentially all I have is Facebook, which I do not follow religiously. But uh, you can you find it. me on there, um, <laughs> especially if we don't have any friends in common. Uh, maybe uh, mention this podcast so I will actually friend you back. There you go. Otherwise, um, writing, directing on the board of Theater West. I also work with a group that raises money for young opera singers, and we put on uh, uh, different types of showcases and uh, concert operas. That's incredible. That's Holy the cow. opera buffs, by the way. I, and but, that's called the opera buffs? Yep. I had no idea. That's wonderful. I'll invite you next time we do something. Please do. Please do. I would love that. Everybody out there, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Colden for uh, requesting this episode. And Definitely. remember, make up your mind. <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.